Bingo. Just past 7 o'clock, and you know what that music means. It means it's time for Iron Sports here on the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Another big show on tap for you tonight. Unfortunately, Ira not in studio with us. Um, Ira, first and foremost, let's talk about where you are now. This wasn't your most um, frequent flyer mile acquiring week, but you took in a lot of events, Ira. So what have you been up to? Well, just, just one series. I've been in L.A., uh, and saw five Dodger games. I saw two games against the Cardinals and three games against the Arizona Diamondbacks. So it was sort of like going to spring training, going to the games every day. It was pretty interesting to go to uh, games. I uh, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, took Thursday off, and then saw Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Uh, in beautiful weather, uh, perfect, uh, wonderful stadium with 50,000 fans every single game. You know, I can't wait to talk about, you know, I got to see the pictures and you can see them too if you follow Ira on Instagram at Ira on Sports. But you were hanging out with some pretty high-end celebrities that's coming up uh, as well. Um, Ira, before we get to our guest for tonight, Kyle Lowry, you know, we've been talking about the FIBA, uh, the FIBA World uh, Basketball Championships. Kyle Lowry now dropped out. He might have been one of the team's best players going into this. Have they called you yet, Ira? Because we're, we're out of options here. I'm surprised, uh, you know, they haven't reached out to you yet to fill in a roster spot. Well, I love it. It's interesting. They, uh, coach K flew in. He's not the coach. He's been the coach for a dozen years. And then he, he actually, Coach Popovich called him in to review the remaining players to see what's going to, who they would choose because they're down to, I think, like 15 players for 12 spots. But they keep adding. They, Bama Bayou was, Adebayo from Miami was cut. Um, but I think they're going to have trouble. I, I think this team, I, there are these, uh, at a, a Giannis Adetempo is playing for Greece. And he alone might be able to be the United States team. So we're going to see. I mean, it, it, it's interesting to know, go from practice, a player that I'm watching, Donovan Mitchell, who plays for Utah, who had a great rookie year, a so-so sophomore year. If he comes back, supposedly he looks fantastic in the practicing. So I'm really looking forward to see how he plays this year for that team. But um, I didn't think Lowry was going to play. He hurt his thumb. Uh, why risk it playing for a tournament? I mean, I, he's trying to make it work out, but it didn't. So I think it was a smart move from his perspective because the Raptors are going to really need him next year. And practice starts in September. Yeah, and you know, um, it, it was funny. I, I thought Bam would be good enough to make that team. We could talk about this uh, more a little bit later. But yeah, Donovan Mitchell alongside Kemba Walker look like they're going to be uh, propelling this uh, United States team. Ira, two great guests uh, tonight. The first one will be on in just one second. We've had him on the show before. It's Nick Elam. Tell us about him. Nick Elam is famous because he's like the Albert Einstein of changing basketball. He came up with a way to, and he's going to let him describe it, but instead of having fouling at the end of the game and there's two minutes left and all you see is fouls after fouls and free throw after free throw, he came up with a way to not have that. And they played on this tournament called the Basketball Tournament. If you watched ESPN the last two weeks, uh, with four minutes to go in the game, there was big signs, the Elam ending comes up, and it's a way to end basketball games. And it's, uh, it was very interesting. And then we're having a, later on a guest called... Uh, uh, an author, Eric Kester. Eric is a writer for the Boston Globe, the New York Times, uh, Huffington Post, and he wrote uh, a Friday night light type of book on high school football uh, that McMillan is really pushing and uh, publishing. I think it's going to be a big bestseller. It's going to be released in a week. And so I'd love to have Eric on for the show. Yeah, no, two great um, guests on tap for us tonight. Believe it or not, I think Nick just got on the line with us. I think we do have Nick Elam on now. Nick, are you there with us? 
Yes, thanks for having me on the show. Well, thank you for joining us. Uh, you're a good friend now of Ira on Sports. Uh, Ira was just talking about um, your Elam ending, and we want to talk more about that, and Ira's got some other stuff for you. So, Ira, what do you have for Nick? Uh, Nick, thanks a lot for coming on. I, um, what, what a great two weeks of basketball you had. I mean, we talked last year, and it was the basketball tournament used it for a few of their games. It's the, the tournament that was on ESPN, uh, $2 million winner-take-all pool. But this time, it was totally, you know, every time the ending came with four weeks to go, there was the Elam ending. Uh, just amazing. And, and I think you can describe it better than me. So tell me exactly what the Elam ending is. Right. So the idea is not to change basketball. Really, it's to do the opposite, to preserve a more natural style of play through the end of every game. And so under the regular format, we see the quality and the style of play deteriorate so often where the leading team stalls and plays very passively. The trailing team, when they're on defense, they have to foul and hand away free points. When they're on offense, they have to rush and force up ugly shots. That whole combination of factors makes the outcome of games too predictable. It makes late comebacks uh, very hard to mount. And uh, what we get is many big games and good games in basketball history that really just kind of fade out with a whimper without one signature moment to carry on. And so the idea behind the Elam ending is that you would play most of the game with a game clock, but you would play the last part of the game without a game clock. And what that would do is uh, address many of these phenomena that we see that are attributable to the clock. And so it would compel uh, leading teams to continue playing assertively. It would uh, allow trailing teams to rely on legitimate defensive stops instead of having to resort to deliberate fouling when they're on defense. They're, they can get their best look and play their best offense uh, when they have the ball. That whole combination of factors makes the outcome of games less predictable, it makes uh, late comebacks more likely, and the game ends with the swish of a net, so you have many more uh, memorable game-ending moments. So there's four minutes to go in the game, and then at the four-minute mark, does the clock stop right there? Or do you, I mean, I guess it was one of the questions was, is it stop there, or do you actually the next the first dead ball after four minutes, the clock stops, and then it's then it's off the rest of the game? Is that right? Sure. So yeah, when you say, well, we're going to play most of the game with the clock and play the last part of the game without a clock, it begs two questions right off the bat, which is, well, when do you shut off the clock and what do you play to? Those settings would vary based on the league or the event uh, for. TBT, they shut off the clock at the four-minute mark of the fourth quarter and set a target score equal to the leading team score plus eight. But it's not a hard stop right at that four-minute mark. Uh, like you were asking about, the clock continues to run uh, you know, until there's that next stoppage of play. Uh, sometimes it's only a few seconds. Really, uh, we haven't seen it go really much more than about 30 seconds or so beyond that four-minute mark. But whenever that next whistle comes, uh, then you stop play, then you sh get rid of the clock, and then you set that target score and play the final stretch of the game without a clock. Now, have you had a chance? Now you had, I think it was used in 71 games in the basketball tournament or some a, a long number of games. Now you've had a chance to see it work. Do the games last longer, shorter, about the same time with, with taking the clock off and just saying, let's, let's hit a score? Uh, great question. So, uh, so the 2019, that data collection still going on because uh, you know, I'm, I'm going through all the game footage possession by possession. But in 2018, when they used the format for the first time across the board in a 71-game event, uh, what we were tracking, and that, and that year they shut off the game clock at the four-minute mark of the fourth quarter and used a plus-seven format uh, to determine the target score. 
So the idea is that if you're cutting out four minutes of the game, you want to get about four minutes worth of game play during that final stretch. And what we were finding is that games were lasting or the games were ending a little bit quicker than anticipated. There was, we were only getting about three minutes worth of game play there. And so uh, that's when TBT decided to bump that up to plus eight for this year. And again, I'm still uh, gathering a lot of data there, but I think anecdotally, it really appears like we're getting much closer to four minutes worth of gameplay. Now, what's even better about that is uh, even though we're getting about the same amount of true game action as you would under a regular time format, the game's proceeding much more efficiently. It's just not as choppy. Uh, You're getting a smoother style of play. So really, you're getting more action uh, in a little bit less real time uh, so it's it's kind of the best of both worlds so far. Yeah, and then the exciting thing about this is, look, it's not coming to the NBA next year. But the point is, and you even said that I saw your interviews, you're like, but it's getting in other tournaments. And you just told me you were talking to people in Europe about having it in some of their leagues and that it's going to be, this is sort of going to be ground up support for this and trying it out and tinkering with it at different other leagues before it actually, you know, it's not going to be, we're not going to play in the NBA next year or so. Right. So the way I see this, you know, naturally growing this concept is, is for now a kind of a grassroots level. And I hear all the time about different, uh, whether it's summer camps or youth leagues, semi-pro leagues, uh, amateur rec leagues, whatever it might be, uh, implementing this format or teams implementing the Elam ending and their practices to ramp up the intensity. And again, I think that's, that's the coolest thing in the world just to hear that this idea is growing at that grassroots level. And now, just like you mentioned, yeah, to hear, uh, I think it's very likely that in 2020 that the Elam ending will be played on an international stage. And again, I just think as more and more people become familiar with this concept, uh, I think it will continue to gain acceptance. I think at this point, uh, you know, a little bit of this is speculation, but I think at this point, I think people who are really immersed in the world of basketball probably are familiar with the Elam ending at this point. I think now... It's a matter of uh, trying to market and present this so that more of the casual fan understands what it is and and what its purpose is. Uh, But because, again, I think when you read about it for the first time or you hear about it for the first time, it really just sounds like the whole concept is from outer space. But then you see it in action and you realize, okay, like this is a pretty simple and straightforward idea. This style of play really looks more like real basketball than what we're used to during the final stretch under the regular format. So, again, I think it's just uh, uh, raising awareness and raising kind of acceptance at this point uh, and allowing the idea to grow. Right. I mean, it, it's the point of, like, when people go out and play one-on-one basketball, it's like first one to ten wins, first one to 21 wins. That's what you're playing. You're playing to a number. You're not going out there with a clock. And so you're actually, in this type of game, uh, you have someone has to make a basket. And if a team doesn't score, you know, a team could be up uh, by 30 points. You add eight more points to the total. But if they don't score any more points, it gives a chance. The other team who's losing isn't looking to foul and hoping someone misses foul shots. It's hoping to score points and score baskets. Uh, and that's what makes more excitement instead of the whole fouling, go to the foul line, substitutions, all this other stuff. I, I, I mean, you're ending. I watched it, of course. I watched all the basketball tournament games, and, and the endings are great, as opposed to some, some NBA and college basketball games where it's just a, a foul fest for the final two. Yeah, and so 
you know, I, I, a 30 point comeback, I don't know if we'll ever quite see that. I, I'm certain we would never see it in the final stretch on the regular format, but you know, even on the Elam ending, that's a little bit of a stretch, 30 points. But I mean, we have seen some really great, just, I would call them like goal line stands and, and TBT. Uh, just this year, there was a team named Red Scare that could not give up one more basket or they would lose. And they got stops on seven straight possessions and came back and won the game. A team named Ever, Everline Drive was in the same situation, got stops on six straight possessions and came back to win the game. Um, and we've seen that here or there uh, throughout the tournament. So I think that's really exciting. But then uh, to talk about games that, that are blowouts and end up as blowouts, if it's a game where there's like historic significance to it, even then uh, just having this exclamation point at the end where somebody's putting the ball through the hoop would give us a lasting image to carry on. I, I think back to, I believe it was uh, 2018 when UMBC became the first number 16 seed to defeat a number one when they beat Virginia. Well, they beat Virginia by uh, you know 20 points in that game. Well, here's this game that we've waited our whole lives to see. We've waited our whole lives to see a 16 beat a one, but because they did it in blowout fashion, there's not even really one moment from that game that anybody can really remember. But if you think about if we had the Elam ending in effect, uh, you know, they might have still won that game by 20 points. But we would remember that final shot that would have sealed uh, that first historic victory for a number 16 seed. Well, well, Nick, again, I want to thank you once again for coming on. We had you last year, um, and uh, and, and there's definitely momentum for this ending, and I I just wish you all the luck. I I think it's great. I think your enthusiasm of it is awesome, and uh, we're going to have Tim Frank of the NBA uh, come on in a couple weeks, and I'm certainly going to ask him about it. And, uh, again, best of luck uh, for the whole for, – for promoting this. You're, I know you're a professor at Ball State and, uh, using the, and using your knowledge of statistics and everything to help with this, but uh, just tremendous. And, and, I, and I just wish you the best of luck in, in trying to get this incorporated all throughout the world playing basketball. Well, I, I really appreciate you having me on the show. And I did listen to your interview with Mr. Frank last year around this time. And, uh, you know, I did hear, you know, the, one, the, the main concern that he cited was one very specific scenario at the end where uh, fouling might be advisable and how it might, um, you know, kind of ruin the flow a little bit. So, you know, I do have a fix for that if it ever became necessary. So, you know, you're always welcome to give him my contact information if you, if you uh, feel so inclined. Uh, Nick, I want to tell you thank you so much, and uh, we're definitely going to have you on again, and I guarantee you this is going to become, like people are looking at this now like, what, what, what? But I think in four or five years it's going to be used throughout. I, I think this is really, this is something that's, that's coming, and it's not, it, it, they're more, again, five years from now, I, I think most basketball leagues are going to be having any ending. So congratulations, on, and, keep, and good luck in the future. Well, thank you so much. Great uh, interview here with Nick Elam here on Ira on Sports. Uh, you know, I, Ira, everything he says makes so much sense, and we said this uh, last time we had Nick on. So let's uh, let's hope, you know, especially through your help and some of your connections, maybe we can get this to the NBA uh, within the next half decade or so. It's Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel at 721. I'm Mike Balsamo here as well. Uh, author uh, Eric Kester joins us at 750. Ira Baseball's in full swing. I love this time of year. You can talk about uh, Antonio Brown burning his feet off and, and talk about golf and the NBA getting ready. They released their schedule today. But baseball's underway, and you took in so much of it this week. Let's talk about it. I went to five games at Dodger Stadium, and what's so amazing about it is everyone says baseball has these problems and this problems. There were two 
100,000 people in five games. 53,000, 49,000, 49,000, 53, and 44. I mean, that is amazing. And compare, like, the, the Dodgers now have top 3 million fans. It's at the earliest point in the season. They're on pace to draw 4 million fans. It's only been done, uh, like, five or six times. Uh, so it's just tremendous in terms of what they're able to do. Uh, to give you an example, the Marlins have drawn 600,000 fans so far, and the, uh, and the Dodgers 3.1 million. Uh, the Marlins average 10,000 of fans, the Dodgers average 49,000, even the Carls at 43,000, and the Yankees are 41,000. Um, the Dodgers have taken over this town. This is really a Dodger town. Uh, the, and, uh, it's every, and people get there early. Everyone's dressed in Dodger blue. Uh, just tremendous. From the, uh, uh, the seats where I was sitting in, the really nice the dugout club seats to the upper deck, uh, it is just a great experience and uh, very popular. They've really, as much as baseball struggling in so many areas of this country, in L.A., it is king. Ira, so you you know you sit in luxury boxes at different venues across all sports um, throughout the country. What is it about Diamond Club that you love so much? And tell us about the celebrities you were hobnobbing with. I want to say, well, it's not. I don't. Sit, I like club seats. I don't sit in luxury boxes, but I like. I was fortunate enough, very fortunate, to sit in the Lexus Club, and it is by far the greatest club. I don't think there's anything even comparison. They have. As much as you want to eat, it actually covers the entire bottom section of the stands. And unlike other stands where you actually have to leave and walk farther away, you're right there. So it's and I'm telling you, if you're a big eater, it actually tickets are not that expensive. I mean, you've got to make sure you don't eat for a day. But they have everything imaginable from made-to-order omelets. I mean, I could go through the whole list of everything. There's, it's just tremendous what they have as an offering, and it's so easy to go to your seats and back and forth. And there's people serving you in your seats, uh, and it's uh, it's great. It's it's a wonderful experience. And then there's so many. As I said, the celebrities, like I sat next to Brian Cranston, who is in Breaking Bad. He was really nice and very talkative. J.J. Uh, Abrams, Rob Lowe, Super Agent Scott Boris. Uh, there's, that's just a few people that sit just right around me. Uh, but it was very, it's neat when you go to a game, and, and they're just fans too. I mean, a lot of these, you know, these, these guys just go to the games all the time. They love sports. They, I've talked to Brian Cranston. I mean, he's, a, he's following the game. He's like anybody else. It wasn't there just a hobnob. He's having a great time bringing his family and enjoying the game. So it is exciting to go there. And uh, the Dodgers at home are 48 and 16. I mean, that, and so right now we're talking about they're leading their, their division by 20 games. But they're they're battling in terms of you know they in terms of the overall best record in baseball they're tied with the Astros and the Yankees and they really want to get that home field I mean this is a team the Dodgers that the last two years have lost in the seventh game of the World Series to the Astros two years ago to the fifth game in the five, in the World Series against the Red Sox it's important to get this home field advantage and to and to have that in the World Series so as much as they're up by twenty it doesn't matter it does matter because they're Anything but winning the World Series would be a failure for this team. Anything. They could go to seven-game World Series, the 25th inning, and lose, and they consider it a total failure. This is, just, this is either win the World Series or bust, both for the Astros, Yankees, and Dodgers. Um, Ira, just real quick before we uh, move into the games a little more. Besides the Elam ending, there's been one thing that uh, we've really been crusading for on this show, and it is how much you hate <laughs> extended nets and, and things like this at baseball stadiums. I think it might be catching on because the Tampa Bay Rays actually said they're about to look into their netting because they need something more transparent. You're not a fan of what you're seeing uh, in L.A. 
I got to sit in the first row for the Dodger game. And so I'm winning. The, and I can't stand what people keep saying. It's state of the art. I don't know what state of the art it is. These <laughs> nets, if you touch them, they're the same. If you went to a soccer uh, net at Walmart and bought it, that's what these nets are. I, I, it's beyond me how they're there, the state of the art. They are, they're, they're just nets. And, and, you can, and you see them. And, like, I sat one game on the first base side. Like, understand, behind home plate, you have to have the nets. But if you're sitting on the first base side, to have those nets there, it's just so distracting. And then if you're going to even extend it further out of the outfield, I don't know how people are going to watch the game. And there's got to be some better net technology because this is close. I mean, I'm at the Dodger game. They're getting millions of fans. They're making tens of millions of dollars. Their payroll is $200 million. I can't believe they can't get a better net or some more transparent net because it's just – I touched the net. It's, it's, just, it's a normal net. There's no state-of-the-art technology with it. Yeah, what state? The state of despair? That was pretty good. Um, so, Ira, let's go to um, to Tuesday night. Clayton Kershaw's on the mound. You're expecting good things. Well, the only thing I'm going to fast to say is I saw Kershaw, Dustin May, who's their 21-year-old rookie, Walter Bureau, Ked Mieta, and, and, and Wu pitch. They pitched 32 innings as starting pitchers. They gave up two runs and the 34 strikeouts. I mean, you can get that starting pitching against two good teams, the Cardinals and Dimebacks. This isn't like playing the Pirates or the Orioles or whatever. These are two very good hitting teams, and their, their pitches were great. I mean, Kershaw is just locked in. I mean, seven innings pitch, four hits, one run, 11 Ks. He's gone six innings, all 20 starts this season. Um, at the last 16 batters, he retired 15 of them. I mean, they are just – the Dodgers, they have Muncie at second base, Turner at third base, Seager at short. And Bellinger, is, the more you watch him, the more Cody Bellinger. I know he's struggling hitting a little bit. He hit, he hit 400 uh, or in 416 in April, and now in the last uh, few months he's been 272, 265, and 200. But he's still, on, still hitting 317 with 38 homers and 90 RBIs. But he plays first base one game, then he plays right field, then he plays center field, and he leads the league in assists from right field, meaning he's throwing bat- runners out, and he hardly even plays right field. That's how what a great arm he is. He is so talented defensively. He might be the best defensive player in baseball, and he's one of the best, hit- one of the best hitters in baseball. And they have so many. So there's infield with Justin Turner and Seager and and. and, and and Muncie and Bellinger is pretty much set. And then in outfield, they rotate. Jock Peterson, Alex Verdogo, Chris Taylor, Kiki Hernandez, they were out. So they have uh, Christopher Negron played a game. I mean, they are bringing – their farm system is so tremendous. They just keep bringing player after player. And it's like, oh, this is their eighth game, their ninth game. And they're coming in getting hits. I mean, they're, it's just amazing. They're, they're, this team is extremely, extremely impressive. They've got a kid. And, uh, they ended Go up, I mean, they ended up beating three. Yeah, they won three one over over. And Kershaw beat Nicholas, who is, if anybody watches the Cardinals in spring training, is their best pitcher. So he pitched great, and he still loses three one to the Dodgers. I was going to say, you know, just adding on to, um, you know, some of the players we've seen this year for the Dodgers coming out of the minors. They've got players that are in high A and double A that are supposed to be better than these guys, you know, in two years when they develop. So uh, Gavin Lux is a name to remember at shortstop who's just going to be an absolute phenom. But he's, you know, he's he's 19 years old. The, 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 the rich are getting richer in L.A. Tell us about um, tell us about Wednesday because you got to see was it May's debut or his second start? His second, Dustin May, and you guys got to see a picture of him. He has this, I think it's red hair. It looked orange, and it's so much. He has so much hair. It's unbelievable, and his hat just sticks on his head, and he is great to watch. He pitched five innings, five hits, one run, uh, and he was going against the Cardinals' Jack Flaherty, who had 10 strikeouts in seven innings, and it's interesting because Flaherty grew up 
in Burbank, which is right next to the stadium, went to Harvard-Westlake, and he won a state title in Dodger Stadium. Um, and uh, that, this game was so exciting because Marcelo Suna, the rubber people run for the Marlins, hit a home run, 20, had, so his 21 home runs, 63 RBIs on the year, and they went up one nothing. And then in the ninth inning, uh, the, uh, the, the um, Bellinger grounded out. Seager got hit by a pitch by Andrew Miller. Then the Cardinals bring in the closer Martinez. Will Smith, who's this young catcher, another young catcher who in 23 has 23 runs in 22 games, he gets a hit. Then one of the players, Rio, striked out. And so they met on first and second and two out. There's a wild pitch. And then suddenly Russell Martin comes and gets this amazing hit right across the middle. And Will Smith scores from second. And after Russell Martin got the hit, he realized that they were gonna, the, the Dodgers were going to attack him. So he starts running around the outfield, and they're, all the team is chasing him. I mean, they're like little kids, like bad news bears. And Russell Martin's like 34 <laughs> years old, and he's being chased around the outfield. And finally they caught him, and they all jumped on top of him, and they were dumping Gatorade, water. He had more. Everything you possibly could imagine was dumped on top of him. But it was a great – they've had now 10 walk-off wins on the year, which is amazing, tremendous, 10 walk-off wins. Ira, let's, uh, let's go to Friday night. Well, then I got to see the Astros – I mean, the Diamondbacks. And I, as someone who doesn't – we don't see in the East Coast the Diamondbacks a lot. They're playing late. They're not in national games. But they have two really good players. Kettle Marte is leading the league in hits with a second baseman with 145 hits and 24 home runs, 67 RBIs. He's a 5.6 uh, war. And Edward Escardo from Venezuela has 26 home runs. He's leading the league in, in RBIs, 94, and he's a 276 average. And uh, they pitched Walker Bueller, the young pitcher, 25 year old pitcher for uh, the Dodgers, pitched hit six innings, four hits, eight strikeouts. I mean, he's. Great year, ten and two. Uh, Kershaw's twelve and two, and Roy's eleven and two. I mean, their records are amazing. Uh, and uh, they, it, it, this game was weird because Bueller pitched perfect. They're up two nothing. They're cruising for another win. And then Jansen, who's the only little weakness on the Dodgers, is their closer. Jansen gave up a two-run home run to Carson Kelly, who's had three hits uh, against Jansen, and two of them been home runs. And, uh, and, that, and then it went to extra innings, and Kelly then hit another home run in the extra innings. And what the game was exciting at the end, because Archie Bradley was pitching for the Dodgers, and he hit A.J. Pollock on the hand. It was a question whether he hit him or hit the bat, and then he fouled, and the ball flew up in the air, and the catcher caught it, and they called it out. This is the bottom of the 11th inning. And then he had to go to the review, and Pollock ran to first base, and he's just standing on first base, sitting there on first base. And when the review came back and said, you're out, it took him forever to walk across the mound. He starts walking in front of Pollock, jawing at Pollock, and then finally the game was over, and, and, and they, uh, uh, Bradley was yelling at Bradley. And when the game was over, both all the benches cleared, all the bullpens cleared. Like every, I think, front office personnel, their minor league teams, like you had every, nobody was throwing any punches. They were all just yelling and pushing and screaming and whatever. And it was just funny to watch. And everyone's waiting for on uh, Saturday for their retaliation, but there really was, there was nothing. Uh, so I, I'm glad. I didn't want to see like, you know, people getting thrown out and whatever. But it was, it was, they were showing it on Sports Center at this big fight. And really, I don't think one punch was thrown. It was just a bunch of, guys yelling at each other you know ira i had to fact check you real quick because i was like there's no way russell martin is younger than me uh he's actually about six weeks older than me he's 36 <laughs> i just had to make sure i'm like i can't be getting that old it's iron sports the true oldies channel 733 i'm mike balsamo uh just about 15 minutes away from eric kester author joining us here on iron sports i will slide into the division matchup so we're running out of time here um well first of all let's talk about the mets because 
I'm hearing so much about this. Being from New York, that's all that everyone is talking about is how good the Mets are. They are playing good, but I'd still be a little bit worried if I'm a Mets fan. You're worried? If you're, only, only Mets fans are worried. The Mets have won two. They won two out of three against the Nationals. They won eight in a row before Sunday. They won 15 out of 16 games. Um, I would not be nervous. I, the Mets are going to be hosting uh, the wild card game. I, I would not be nervous. I mean, that's my prediction. I think the Mets will post the Washington Nationals. I, the Mets are there. They're the team. I mean, there are seven teams battling for those two spots, and I think the Mets are going to get it. They, they are, their pitching is great. Their young, their young play, Alfonso is just so exciting. McNeil is leading league and hitting. This team is, this is the team that they're, they're, they're going to get the wild card. And then I, 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 I'm so glad they did not be sellers and trade singer guard and trade anybody and brought Stroman in. And I love the fact that they're now, uh, they're just a half a game. They're actually tied for the wild card spot. Right now. Ira, I think if you asked most people who's the top team in baseball since the all-star game, they would have no idea. It's the Cleveland Indians have been the best team and they just tied up the twins after a win today. Well, the tw- Indians, they were at one point in on a, uh, the Twins have led the division since April 27th. They had a 12 game lead on the third. And on the July 13th, that's June 3rd. On July 13th, they were seven and a half games. And the Indians on Carlos Santana's grand slam, uh, in the 10th inning where it was, uh, you know, the Indians beat the Twins and to tie them up. And I, I think the Twins are definitely going to fall. I mean, the Twins might make the wild card. This is the division. I mean, I think when the season started, people thought this was the division for the Indians to win. They didn't play well to begin the year, but now everything's coming together for them. And I think they win the division. No, I agree with you, and I, I don't know if there's a coach um, you know, in the, or a manager in the American League I'm trusting more than Francona. So the, everything's working out for the Indians. It's weird that you'd think a team that was up 13 games would have their quote back against the wall here, but they kind of do, and if Cleveland keeps going like this, not going to look good for Minnesota. I don't want to play that play-in game. All right, Dell, let's talk about the rest of the AL. How are things looking as we try to uh, wrap up this season? Well, the Yankees are eight and a half over by the Rays. The Twins, we talked about Twins and Indians. And the Astros are, over, are 10 over the A's. But both the Yankees and the Astros have a 77 and uh, 41 record. It, it was interesting. The Astros played the Orioles. On Saturday, they won 23 to 2. They had 25 six hits to 6 for the Orioles. And they were the largest favorite all season to win a game at minus 460 to win the game. And they and Verlander lost. And they actually lost to the Orioles. And the Orioles celebrated like they had won the, the World Series. But still, the Astros are um, – it's going to be a battle between the Astros and the Orioles and even the Dodgers for the overall record because home field matters for the Yankees and the Astros and the Dodgers. All these teams, if you'll say, what does this one game, home field and baseball doesn't matter. When you're 48 and 16 like you're the Dodgers, you need that extra game, especially when you lost a game seven in the World Series at home per se, but you definitely want to have that, uh, that thing. And then in the wild card, it looks like the Indians, and it's really between the Indians and Twins, the loser of that division, and then the Rays and the A's are one and a half games back. I, I think the Red Sox are sitting there seven and a half back. I'm just waiting. They're like a team. They're just like just waiting for it to fire. And they did a little bit a couple of weeks ago when they beat the Yankees, but they're still just treading water. I just, I'm waiting for them to, to make their run. They're only seven and a half back, but it's not looking good right now. Yeah, I don't know if that run's coming for the old Boston Red Sox. Funny you bring up that um, that huge underdog cover. Clayton Kershaw was actually the last time that happened. It was in 2012. I believe he was facing uh, the Marlins, and it was about a 400, uh, minus 400 win there. Um, NL, what's going on? Braves are over the Nats by six and a half. The Cubs, car- Cubs are ahead by two over the Cardinals and the Brewers. And the Dodgers are 19 games over the Diamondbacks and Giants. But then all those teams that we mentioned 
are all in the mix. I mean, it is seven teams for two spots uh, between the, the Washington, St. Louis, Milwaukee, the Mets, the Phillies, Arizona, San Francisco. I mean, it's going to be exciting. I mean, this it's it's great. I, I my prediction: Mets, Washington. Those are the two the two teams with the best pitching. I think will end up being the two teams in the wild card game. Ira, let's uh, switch gears to football. Everyone is talking about Antonio Brown, um, but let's talk about another Steeler uh, just for a moment. Some sad news out of Pittsburgh. Daryl Drake was the Steelers wide receiver coach last year. He's been the Bears coach for eight years before that, and also Arizona Cardinals coach for four years. He is a wide. He passed away at 62. Um, and uh, as someone who, of course, all the Steelers, I know who he is and everything. But you just see the outpouring. I mean, it's it's football is a little different than other sports in that the, sometimes these players don't know their coach. I mean, you think about Tomlin; he's the face of the Steelers, but. The players don't talk to Tomlin so much, but the wide receivers talk to the position coach at almost the whole practice after practice. And you can see the emotion from all these wide receivers that talked about Drake, from all the people he coached, and how he was always just supportive of them and enthusiastic in his intelligence and his preparation and everything and what a great person he is. Um, and the accolades came in. I mean, we don't hear, we don't talk about Daryl Drake. We're spending time talking about Antonio Brown and Tomlin and Watson, but it's the Daryl Drakes of the world that are involved in football that have such an impact on these players. And you can just see now, I mean, it's horrendous that it had to happen on a tragedy like this. But the fact that, that you know, when Juju Smith-Schuster says, I've never had a coach that coached me like Daryl Drake. He's the best person, the best person, coach I've ever had. And he's not the only person that said that. And I, my condolences certainly to his family. And, uh, but just, it's, he should, you know, definitely, it's amazing to see the outpouring of support and for the, the accolades that are coming into Coach Drake. Um, you know, Ira, across social media, the memes and stuff have just been ridiculous this past week. They're all focusing around Antonio Brown, and most of them are saying, you know, we really all owe Ben and Mike Tomlin an apology for everything bad we've said about them, um, you know, over the past season or two. This guy's a head case, and I, I just can't wrap my head around him, uh, I. Well, I think the Steelers also get credit for covering all this up. I mean, it's a, it just shows you what kind of organization they have. That this it's now coming out of things that he was doing, and they really and and I think you know Stephen A. Smith might be the only person on, is now keeps defending Antonio Brown because the whole idea was oh it's Ben's fault for calling him out. It's Ben's fault because after one of the games last year, we talked about how Ben said he didn't run the right routes and he should have thrown it to Juju Smith-Schuster more, and then and, and then people said well he upset Antonio Brown. But the more that you see how Antonio Brown, I mean, he comes to practice on a hot air balloon. He then practices for 30 minutes and then plays with his kids the rest of the practice. Then he says he can't practice at all because he hurt his feet at cryotherapy in France because he wore the long shoes. And then now he doesn't want to play because his helmet was banned. Now, understand about this helmet, that he knew it was, it was going to be banned. It's, it's been discontinued since 2011, and there's 34 other helmets he could use. And there's, that he's allowed to use by the same manufacturer, should, which makes the helmet. And, is, and, and so he thinks he should be treated different than everyone else, even though Tom Brady, who has won six titles, is the same situation. He's one of the few players also that has the whole helmet issue, and he's finding another helmet to play. And he was suing the NFL, saying he should – now, we know all about concussion. And when, when the manufacturer says, no, we don't want to use this helmet, it's been discontinued since 2011. You have three dozen other helmets you possibly could use. <laughs> Why should he decide? He goes, I'm, I'm going to retire. I'm not going to play. He hasn't been in practice. 
And as a Steelers fan, it's like this is what has been going on. It's been getting worse and worse and worse. And I think when Ben called him out, the more I – now you see what the Raiders are doing? They're supporting him. Gruden comes out and says, he's our guy. We can't wait to do it. They have to. They just signed him to this multi-zillion dollar contract. But what Ben was doing, I think, was sort of showing the rest of the team. I think he was calling out Antonio Brown because the rest of the team was tired of his antics, tired of his, tired of his attitude. And, wanted, and I think Ben was like, look, if no one else is going to call him out, I'm going to call him out. Then Ben got hit by everybody on social media about, oh, look how terrible he is, and he's, and he's uh, making Antonio Brown upset, and he should recognize and should be nicer. But really, I think he was sort of like trying to keep the locker room together because Antonio was doing this all last year, the year before, the year before that. No, Ira, you hit the nail on the head. Great uh, analysis from someone who is a Steelers fan. And it's funny, Le'Veon Bell, through all this, you know, this season, really keeping quiet. And I think he's trying to fly under the radar and maybe like, wow, Antonio's really making himself look bad. We were trying to make the Steelers look bad. This is all on Antonio now. I'm going to stay out of this. So, Ira, is there ever is there any event in all of sports, where there's more snap judgments after a smaller amount of performance than week one of the preseason. It's crazy. Some of the analysis and projections we're getting after seeing guys throw, you know, five or six passes. Tell us about everything that went down um, in this first preseason game and how we're looking at players. Just what people are looking right now are the quarterbacks and the three quarterbacks that were drafted, Kyler Murray for the Cardinals, Dwayne Haskins for the, out of Ohio State for the Redskins, and Daniel Jones for the Giants. Daniel Jones comes in on the second series for the, the Giants. He was 5 for 5, 67 yards, and a touchdown. Then he went out of the game. And people think, okay, he's the starting quarterback for the Giants. Now, remember, he's they're playing the Jets at the time. It, it, but the point is that it's one series. The Jets are playing a very basic defense. They're not showing them what they're going to do. And they, he just went in with 5 for 5. And then he doesn't play the rest of the game. It was one series. Uh, Kyler Murray, 6 for 7, 44 yards. I mean, so what? And then Haskins, I give Haskins credit. He played almost like a quarter and a half. He had 116 uh, uh, yards. Two interceptions, though. But um, I think that – I mean, he looked good. I think – I'm, I'm getting, I've more, more than any of all of this, I think Haskins is winning the Redskins. I, I think he's going to be the starting quarterback, if not the first week, but very soon in the season. But I think Eli is going to be the quarterback for the Giants. I think this is just sort of, the Giants have been coming under a lot of pressure because they drafted Daniel Jones out of Duke with the sixth pick when he should have, they thought, be a second or third rounder. So they're happy that he played well, And but I don't think they're starting him. They're going to start Eli Manning, and I think Eli is going to play most of the year. And Kyler Murray of the Cards is already going to be the starter. I'm surprised that Jones and Murray didn't play more. I mean, these are rookies. Yeah. You, want, you would think that they would have them in these preseason games and play the, like at least the first half. They played less than Pat Mahomes did for Kansas City. So I was surprised that they didn't play more than, more than just one series. I was surprised about that, too. And now that stuff's coming out that – um, Arizona doesn't want to reveal any of Kyler Murray's playbook. So they're running basically four <laughs> plays, and nobody will see anything till the, till the season starts. But some teams are in midseason form. The Lions got blown out by 28 points. So some teams, at least, they're right where they need well, to Well, I like the Lions. The, the Patriots beat the Lions 31-3. And I, what's interesting is, remember, they, Jared Stidham of Auburn, who they, they drafted, uh, looked very good in that game. And Brian Hoyer. Everyone kept saying, oh, they got rid of Garoppolo. There's no backup plan and, uh, for, for, for the uh, – for the Patriots, but I, I mean, I think that game shows the Patriots are ready to play. As much as preseason games don't matter, um, that was interesting. They totally destroyed the Lions, thirty-one-three, and Stidham and Hoyer both looked very good in that game. And and you know, and then for the Dolphins, Josh Rosen, thirteen twenty for one hundred ninety-one yards. The question is whether he's going to be the quarterback or Ryan Fitzpatrick's going to be the quarterback. Uh, and Rosen looked okay, not fantastic, but. 
again, you're looking at basic defenses. I mean, when you start to run five intercepts, when, when the season starts uh, and defenses are going to be going and running, you're going to, that's what it matters. This is just this is practice. It's not really a game. I agree with you, and that's why I hate seeing all this you know, stuff all over the Internet about, oh, my God, look at what this guy did. It never matters, especially uh, this early on in the preseason. You know, Ira, we've been breaking down divisions. Let's do one uh, this week. We have a lot of divisions that come on where it's, you know, the, the one or two teams that are the, the pinnacle, and then there's, you know, a bottom feeder or three. The NFC South, to me, is has quickly become one of the most competitive divisions. And, you know, even though Atlanta and Carolina had down years last year, there's nobody looking at those rosters that's saying this team doesn't have the potential to make the playoffs. Then you've got New Orleans, who's been winning the division, but Drew Brees in the last six weeks of last year just didn't look like himself. He didn't have that arm zip. Is this the year he's finally done? Tampa is what Tampa is. I don't expect them to do much, but I think it's going to be a dogfight among New Orleans, Atlanta, and Carolina. Well, this division's exciting because you have three quarterbacks, New Orleans and Breeze, Atlanta and Ryan and, and, and Cam Newton at Carolina, all play in the Super Bowl. So you have three Super Bowl quarterbacks. Yeah. Now only Breeze won the Super Bowl. But they also, you have three teams that have very exciting players. And Christian McCafferty for Carolina is, if you look in fantasy and, you, and you're in a PPR league, which is points for reception, he's going to be one of the top three or four players taken. He's going to perhaps catch 100 passes this year for uh, a break, maybe break every uh, running back or receiving record. Uh, and they like DJ Moore too. And then if you look at Atlanta, you have uh, Julia Jones and Julio uh, Jones and Calvin Ridley, the guy from Alabama who came on last year uh, as, as a wide receiver. And then for New Orleans, you have Thomas, who we talked about last week, just signed a $100 million contract. You have Kamara. Uh, you have a coach in, in Sean Payton. So you have, good, you have good coaches at New Orleans and Atlanta that everyone thinks, and, and Ron Rivera at Carolina also. And these three teams uh, could go either way. And as a breeze was 25 touchdowns, one interception over the first 11 games, but only 11 touchdowns and six interceptions over the last six, and had a chance to beat the Rams to go to the Super Bowl and uh, was unable to do that. Uh, you know, as much as people talk about the interference and the play and the problems, he had his chance to win that game at home and was unable to, to do it. So uh, it's, it's this division is a division that if I say, again, we talk about teams, if Cam Newton has a Cam Newton MVP type year, yeah, they can go to the Super Bowl. If Atlanta, if Matt Ryan has an MVP year, guess what? He's going to the Super Bowl. New, a brief, you have three teams that are clearly could go to the Super Bowl this year. No, I agree with you. That's why I think the NFC South will be one of the tougher ones to pick, especially compared to the ones we've talked about already. We're just about, let's say, three or four minutes away from author Eric Kester joining us here on Iron Sports. That's what you're listening to. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, real quick, the Northern Trust. So my favorite part of this was Giants players, Sterling Shepard, and also Saquon Barkley going out to watch and hanging out with Brooks Kepka um, during this tournament. I wish you had been there for that, but tell us about what happened at the Northern Trust. Patrick Reed back in the winner's circle after a long layoff. We talked about Patrick Reed a couple of years ago when he won the Masters. And after that, that was last year. It seemed like a couple of years ago. But it was, this is his first victory in 60 months, uh, 41 tournaments since winning the Masters. And after he won, after his fourth U.S. Open last year, he had eight tournaments. They was not in the top ten. Started this year, 16 tournaments not in the top ten. And just started playing better. But he went from being 50th in points to second. And he was struggling in the final round. But uh, John Ram had this tournament. But he bogeyed the par three, 14th, bogeyed the 15th. Reed uh, birdied those both those holes and jumped ahead. And the big name. Like Spieth, who shot a 74 on Saturday, he he finished four strokes back. 
Rory McIlroy finished four strokes back. Justin Thomas six strokes back, and uh, Dustin Johnson was leading the tournament. You know, he was paired on Saturday with Spieth. He had a 63 and 67. He shot a 74 and a 73 to finish in 24th. Kepka was exciting. Kepka was really doing nothing until Sunday. He said started at five under, and his first five holes he he picked up. He had three birdies and an eagle, and then he had a triple bogey. Probably they said his worst hole that he had a uh, triple bogey on eight, and then a uh, and then a, a bogey on nine, and fell back. Uh, what's interesting in this tournament is that the major winners, Tiger, uh, shot a 75, looked terrible in the first round, and then withdrew because of an oblique strain. Maybe he'll play next week, maybe not. Uh, Gary Woodland, who won the U.S. Open, uh, he uh, finished with a 52nd place, and Shane Lowry won the British Open, 52nd place. So the major winners did not do good anymore. The trust. I understand they cut the field down for the final for the next one, which is the uh, BMW in Medina the next week, and then that'll be cut further to the Tour Championships. There's only two more tournaments left this year for I mean they can, for the for this season in golf so that's what's exciting we have just two more weeks of that and uh, then we'll see it, it's going to be interesting to uh, see how it pans out it was kind of cool you know seeing it in New York with the backdrop uh, I know you attend a lot of events but and uh, surely there's some more picturesque views but that background to me just uh, really makes something um all right let's bring in Eric Kester he's the author of Gut Check joining us here on Ira and Sports Eric thank you so much for spending some time with us today Ira what do you have for Eric. Eric, thanks a lot for coming on the show. I really appreciate you coming on. And I know your book, you have a book called Gut Check. It's like a Friday night's light uh, night uh, book. It's coming out in about a week. Uh, so uh, thanks a lot for coming on our show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so you're a, you, went, you played football at Harvard. Uh, mm-hmm. you're, you, you've written about Harvard before. You've read sports for the Boston Globe, the New York Times, Huffington Post. You decide to write a fiction book about high school football. Uh, was it your football background? Like, what, what possessed you to go and, 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 and tackle this uh, tough subject of high school football? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I, I think the reason I decided to write about high school football is because in the last few years, I've found my own feelings about football to really become conflicting in a lot of interesting ways. Football has been such a big part of my life. Since I was growing up, it's been an important part of my my family, my community. I played in high school. I played in college. Um, and I love it in so many ways. Uh, I'm a big fan of the NFL. I follow college football. Um, I've had many of my best friends play football. Um, and some of the best people I know in my life play football. Uh, but on the other hand, the some of the, the detrimental sides of the sport are, are becoming harder and harder to ignore. There's obviously the, the physical side, and as we all know, um, as the research on concussions and, and head trauma um, gets more sophisticated, it, it's harder to reconcile that uh, violence with, uh, with the sport that, that we love. Um, and then also the cultural side of the sport and what it does for uh, especially adolescents who are going through high school, which is a time of when you're forming your identity and you're, you're transitioning from uh, being a youth to, to an adult and being in, a, in an environment in a football locker room is so interesting to me because you can learn some of the most important, best lessons of life in a football locker room, but can, it can also quickly go in the totally opposite direction and be uh, really harmful for the development of, of young men. So I, I wanted to explore all those things and, and kind of see where I came down on this. And, and the answer is not a black and white one. I don't, I don't f- find football to be 
an abhorrent sport at all. I find it to be uh, really uh, uh, can be uh, can, under the right circumstances can be uh, truly uplifting for someone. Um, but on the other hand, I've seen it go in the other direction for a lot of people too. So uh, it's just a really murky subject. And I think fiction is just a really good way of, of using characters and a community and a setting to explore those. Well, and I don't want to go – I love reading books, and I'm glad you're on our, our show because I, I think sports writing is tremendous. We've had a number of authors like John Feinstein, uh, John Eisenberg, who's been on our show, uh, and I love having authors on. And certainly this book is someone that Macmillan really is pushing and thinks is going to be a, a top seller. So I think best of luck with the book. Uh, but it's interesting how you handled it in terms of having the one player who, in, in the eyes of his name Wyatt, and he's the sort of bench warmer type of player that most football teams have. Like, not every, you don't really have stars on football teams. You have a few stars, and then his brother is the star quarterback. So you, it was almost from the perspective of two different people: the star quarterback, the star player, the Antonio Brown and, Brown and Ben Rosenberger, and then the other player that's sort of just the special teams type player that just happens to get in the game. And I think that was interesting to see because that's sort of what makes a football team: you have the stars, and then you have everybody else, which is most of the team. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you brought that up because um, the, my inspiration for the, the protagonist, Wyatt, whom you mentioned, um, yeah, he's a bench warmer. He's a lineman. He's uh, part of kind of the unglorious, unsexy side of the sport. And that, that really came from my experience um, uh, when I was 17. I was actually a, a ball boy for the Chicago Bears for a brief time, just a few weeks, um, one summer during their training camp. And my, my uh, assignment on the team was to take care of the offensive linemen. And it was such an eye-opening experience to me because here I was, a 17-year-old, huge NFL fan, getting to uh, see behind the curtain of the NFL and, and being close to these NFL players. And it was so interesting to see the difference between some of the, the star players, the ones that we all, like Brian Urlacher, for instance, was on the team at that point and, and was a superstar, future Hall of Famer, made millions of dollars. Um, but then I, I got to see see the and get to know some of the offensive linemen who are who are obviously unheralded and, and a lot of these guys, you know, would only last a couple of days on the team and get cut. They would get injuries. They they, you know, got paid like a weekly stipend, which would help them get their food and everything. But they did not live a glorious life. And and that to me was one of the first times I was like, Whoa, this is uh this is there's there are untold stories about uh, football and um, that's really what makes up the majority of a team. Um, but we do in the media tend to to spend our time focusing on the superstars, and and those stories are are actually the aberration. Um, the, the norm is more the the person who who goes in and and, and tries it and either gets injured or um, he just doesn't doesn't advance to a stage where they can make a living off of it. Um, so I was really interested in looking at that that perspective. And the other thing about the book, and, and we talked about this when we, uh, the coach um, for the Steelers, the wide receiver coach uh, who passed away, and, and how he's a position coach. And, and, and I think that we sometimes, as I said, we look at the Belichicks and the Tomlins, and we don't mention Daryl Drake. And Daryl Drake has mm -hmm. the impact. Now, this is on the pro level at a very high level, but these high school coaches that are with these players. I mean, you have Coach Stetson, I think is the name of the book that you had. I mean, the, the impact that they have as a high school coach, and I think it's something you, you stress in the book in terms of if they're a great coach and a great person and they teach them how to tackle the right, they can be the best 
forcibly mm-hmm. that this kid's going to ever get. And if they're not a good coach, then it's going to be one of the worst things that they have. So really, these these high school coaches really have such a – I mean, it's, you know, they're not getting paid the $10 million a year Belichick has, but they're actually doing more for society than, than Bill Belichick is to some extent. Yeah, I agree. And, and like I said earlier, it's some of the – some of the best men I've met in my life have been football coaches, and I've. But also on the other end of the spectrum, there have been some football coaches I've seen uh, who I think really push people down. And to me, really, the difference is, uh, and I think this is important for parents to to really think about when they look to see put their kids in a football program. Um, try to try to identify the culture and see if the coaches are the types of people who are there to lift others up, rather than they're there to lift themselves up by putting other people down. Um, when you get someone who's really there because they love the game and they love trying to get the most out of young people and pushing them to, to galvanize as a team, that like that's when really magical things happen. But on the flip side, um, you do sometimes, and this happens in every industry, not not just sports and not just football, but it, it tends to happen, especially in football. Um, you do sometimes get people who uh, really, for whatever reason, want to. Um, push others down in order to make themselves feel stronger and more powerful. Uh, football, you know, it's a, it's a game of power in a lot of ways. And um, that can be a, a great element of it in terms of a power struggle between two teams and the physical aspect of it. But also the, uh, the power side of things can seep into the, some of the communications and the, the relationships between players and coaches and players and teammates. So, um, yeah, that that is uh, that that can go south. But but like I said, if if a if a coach is really there to to lift people up, then it then it, it can there can be fewer people in life who have bigger uh, impacts. If uh, football coaches can really be powerful impacts. We're talking to Eric Kessner, who's the author of Gut Check. His book's going to be released, I think, next week from Macmillan Publishing. It's a Friday. I, I'm, I'm giving you the term. It's a Friday Night Lights type <laughs> of book in terms of it goes over the good and bad of high school football. And, 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 and there's a lot of interest. I mean, it, and I guess that's my, one of my last questions to you is, where do you see high school football going? I mean, people keep talking about how you know, t- the participation is dropping, uh, but not as much as people would think it would be. Where do you think in terms of the participation – where is where is the, where is it really where is the future? Because and the NFL realizes if there's no high school football, there's not going to be NFL. So exactly, and that's why they're investing so much in in youth sports. Where do you see high school football in the next five years? Well, I'm from the Northeast, and we we are seeing some drops in in numbers up here. I'm, I'm sure um, in Florida, it's, it's not as much of a, an issue yet. But yeah, it is something that's talked about more and more, and. I, I always tell people, like with everything in life, it, it does kind of come down to money. And as long as the NFL is, uh, you know, making the billions of dollars that it is, there will always be um, people and athletes who who want to pursue that. Um, but the sport does need to take a hard look in the mirror, and and they've done this at times. I will I will give the NFL credit. They they've made rule changes, and they've they've uh, tried to make equipment uh, rules to to take the some of the danger out of the sport um but there are going to be have to have to be even larger um changes to the game some people will go to the extreme of saying well it's it's eventually going to become a seven on seven sport that's barely even tackle is kind of like a flag football um i don't really see it going that direction either though because (laughs) whether we like it or not i mean the the physical side of the game can be one of the the best aspects 
uh, of it. And it's, it's thrilling. It kind of, um, it kind of uh, appeals to our primal nature in a way. Um, the question is, how, is there a way to, to have a physical contact sport that also uh, looks after the players first? So the NFL really, I think, needs to um, uh, know that every, it starts with them. They're the top. They need to show not just a demonstrated concern for the safety, uh, the physical safety of players with concussions, but also more of a, a physical a concern for their actual welfare as human beings and making sure that these guys are taken care of after they retire, make sure that if they do get injured, they're getting the, uh, as much proper care as needed, make sure that these players are getting educated so they can um, have good, happy, healthy lives beyond football. Because at times it seems like the NFL really only cares um, so, uh, about their product on the field and then the image of seeming like they care about health. But if there's a larger kind of cultural feeling of, um, of support and well for the wellness and safety of players, I think um, that will start pushing us a little closer to, to an area where, where football can survive. It will be different, but um, one in which really the, the sport is seen, seen as a game being played by humans rather than just uh, these robots out there tackling each other. Well, we talked to Eric Kessner, uh, wrote Gut Check. It's, I guess, available at Amazon.com in a week um, and any bookstores that you want to go to. And, uh, Eric, I really appreciate you. Best of luck. Hopefully you get this in the in movie format also. And, uh, yes. and again, it's best of luck on your sales of your book and, and talking about it. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on. He is Eric Kester here on Ira on Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at E. Kester or follow him on his website, erickester.com. Got another book out called That Book About Harvard, Surviving the World's Most Famous University, One Embarrassment at a Time. It's Eric Kester here on Ira on Sports. Ira, we got just a couple of minutes left to go. Tennis is still going on, though, and uh, you you are all over this. And I'm following now more because of you, but Serena Williams since having the child, has not found herself in the winner's circle, but I think a lot of analysts say she's going to be due for it soon. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, even though that uh, Bianca Andresso, who uh, from Canada, 19-year-old, I mean, Canadians have maybe the best young woman besides Coco Golf and maybe the best young man. So the tennis world could be in Canada pretty soon, but she won the Indian Wells Tournament and then she came back and just beat Serena and won this tournament, which is the Rogers tournament, which is the two of the biggest hard court tournaments uh, in the in the United in the world, really. Um, for the Americans, Madison Keys lost in the first round. Sloane Stevens lost in the first round. Allison Risk lost in the second round. Sophia Kennan's playing really well. Uh, she made it to the semifinals before losing Bianca. Um, but and then Osaka, who is the number two ranked in the world, who we remember won the U.S. Open last year, but has just been struggling lately, and she lost. Uh, Serena beat her 6-3, 6-4 in the quarters. Uh, Serena made it to the finals, but uh, just could only play four games. And it, it, if you can see the ending, it's pretty it's, – it's, Bianca went over to her and was like, can you play? You're my idol. I feel bad. It was really sweet. I mean, it was really a nice way. She's so cute. And it was, it was, uh, it was a nice, uh, very touching, uh, respectful uh, to Serena and saying, you're my hero. You're great. Are you sure you're okay? Um, so it was very, it's a good – I think Bianca is great for the future of the sport. But, look, Serena has to win that one major. These tournaments don't really matter so much. This U.S. Open is where she's ready to go. And I think she just pulled up because she's – injured and doesn't want to make it worse and then she's gunning for New York and to win it and win it this year to, to tie Margaret Court's record at 24. What's going on with the man eye? 
um, Nadal won the tournament. Is that a surprise? But we talked about Medvedev <laughs> last year, last week, the Russian who has the same birthday as my as my girlfriend at the same date. Um, but he looked fantastic. He played. This Medvedev is phenomenal. You know how much I like Dominic Thiem? He beat him 6-3, 6-1 in the quarters. Um, some players like Kyrgyz didn't even care. He won the, the Washington tournament. He lost 6-3, 6-4 in the first round. Isner lost 6-3, 6-4. Stefanos Tsitsipas, who agrees, who I kept saying is this great young player, still didn't play well, lost in three sets. And uh, FAA uh, from, uh, from Canada, uh, he won his, his uh, first two matches and beat actually the 17th seed Ronick before falling to Karen Karachinov of Russia, who played, who Medvedev beat to go into the finals. And this, these two Russian players are very, very good. And, and Karen played well last year in the U.S. Open, and uh, I really think he's going to be uh, set to, uh, to do well at the, in, in New York in two weeks. Uh, they're, they're playing a Cincinnati tournament this week, and then they take a week off, and then they're going to play at the U.S. Open, which I'm, of course, going to go to. So it's exciting. <laughs> this is great. This is a great time. The doll, that's the doll. The key is the doll usually this time of year doesn't gets injured, doesn't look like he's, he looks like he's playing great. Now, Federer and Djokovic didn't play at this tournament, but as I said, if we're going to have the doll, Djokovic, and Federer all playing at the top of their game for the U.S. Open, this might be the last time this ever happens, so just enjoy it. Ira, I know uh, um, you must be getting antsy because you haven't had a flight in about uh, four days. So you're getting out of town, I I think, now heading across the country somewhere. What are you doing tonight and what's your plan for the week? Um, I'm not sure where (laughs) – that's a good question. I am not sure what we're going to do. I think I'm just going to get ready for tennis and get ready for the U.S. Open coming up uh, in New York. It's a great event to go to. If anyone's in New York, if you hate tennis, you should still go to it. It's fun to go to, and it is really an amazing, an amazing event. So I'm excited by that. I'm still I miss the golf. I mean, there was the one thing we didn't talk about, which we talked about next week, is uh, Bryce and Deshaun Blow got criticized for slow play. And we'll go through this whole problem with the slow play because it's been a running theme in golf. But what's happening is that you have the top golfers in the world, like the Brooks Kefkas, the Justin Thomas, and Tiger Woods. They like to play fast. They like to go hit the ball and go. And then you have these other players like Deshaun Blow and J.B. Holmes that take their time. And, and the key was that Deshaun Blow walked. He hit it, had 70 yards, walked 70 yards to look where the ball, where the whole pin was, walked past the pin, then came back. That took three minutes. And they took another three and a half minutes to putt a six-foot putt. So I think it's now becoming a point where some of these top players are slower than ever, and the top players, the city top players, really want to speed play up, and they finally are calling these players out. And I'd love to talk about it next week. We're going to have Warren Bakke, who is Brooks Kepka's coach, on in two weeks, and he's going to come in studio, and I'm excited to have him, and that's something we're going to discuss is about the future of golf in terms of are we actually going to start penalizing players for playing slow at the, at the top levels. You know, it's one of those things that it, it's actually a rule. It's just so under-enforced. We'll see if it happens. I don't know if it will, but either way, that's going to be a great interview, and uh, I'm really excited uh, for that show and, and just everything in general. Ira, we've had a great time tonight. I want to thank Nick Elam for stopping by, also author Eric Kester. This is Ira on Sports. Let's talk next, next Monday night.